Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah 31 is a short version of Isaiah 30. We've covered Isaiah 30 this morning, and we shall be brief with Isaiah 31. It's easy to understand. Nine verses long, four little tiny sections that it continues to sound the warning that we do not look elsewhere for our help or any aspect of our lives, our fulfillment, our joy, our legacy, our peace, our safety is in the Lord and nowhere else. Amen. And when we look somewhere else for any of those things, we say the Lord is inadequate, insufficient to give us those things, and it's highly offensive to Him. Very briefly, the simple lesson of Isaiah 31 and Judah trusting Egypt instead of God to deliver them from Sennacherib of the Assyrians. I read the first three verses. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. Amen and amen. The holpen are the Jews. The helper are the Egyptians. And they're going to fall together because God's going to overthrow this confederation and association. Verse 1 ends with an exclamation point because like so many of these chapters, it is a pronouncement and sentence of God's judgment. And here it is a sentence and pronouncement of his judgment against Judah. Instead of saying the burden of Judah, it says woe unto them that go down to Egypt for help. And that's what the Jews were doing. And stay on horses. That does not mean they ride all day long. That means they find their help and support in horses. The word stay, when it's used as a verb, can mean to remain in a place for some period of time, or it can mean to find help and support in a thing. And so they're trusting, but that's the next word. I, don't want it. I didn't want to use that word. They're finding help and support on horses, and they're trusting in chariots for a couple of reasons. Egypt was known for many horses, many chariots and horsemen, and horses are strong. You know, one horse is stronger than a man in a number of measures, faster than a man, and so they're putting their trust in the flesh. They're, they're, they're only thinking naturally by numbers and by strength. And so they're going to Egypt for numbers and for strength instead of going to the Lord who loves it when the odds are against him in numbers and strength so that he can show his mighty power. Yeah, right. Too bad they didn't have the faith of Jonathan, 
who told his armor bearer, oh, forget it. Listen, the Lord loves to work with few more than many. So let's go take on this garrison of Philistines by ourselves. And they did. That's verse 1. Yet, he also is wise. Can you hear and feel the pain of those words? God also is wise compared to what? The Egyptians? The Egyptians. Go back and read Isaiah 19. If you can recall what God was going to do to all the soothsayers and counselors and magicians of Egypt. He was going to turn all their so-called wisdom into folly. But here in verse 2, part of this first section, Jerusalem being judged for trusting in Egypt, God also is wise. So why would you think about the wisdom of the Egyptians? Implied, God also is strong, so why would you think of the strength of the Egyptians? And this God that is also wise is going to bring evil and will not call back his words. The warnings of the first ten chapters and the second ten chapters and the third ten chapters are of God's warning of judgment against Judah, and he's not going to bring the words back. He will execute his judgment on these people that were wicked, rebellious, and would not believe and trust him. He'll arise against the house of the evildoers, that is the Jews, and against the help of them that work iniquity, the sinners of Egypt. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. What's the difference between a man and God as we read these, this first clause? Is there much of a difference? Is the difference huge? Is the difference immeasurable? Is the difference infinite? Now the Egyptians are men. Doctors are men. They practice medicine. They know so little of the human body compared to the creator of the human body. Our government doesn't understand economics or finances. That's why our nation's in trouble. God understands those things. We can go to God for any matter. They do not teach in Psychology 101 or Psychology 510 the truth about relationships. The Bible does. God is wiser than man. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. What a terrible thing that a preacher would be reduced to having to say that. That should be a given in every believer. And their horses flesh and not spirit. And someone might say, well, what about a spirited horse? Oh, no, no, no. You don't know what kind of a spirit is being talked about here. Their horses flesh and not spirit. What is going to destroy the Assyrian army? How many of them? One of them, and he is a created spirit. Very unlike a horse. What a beautiful statement here. And we, we celebrate, we look at it, we understand it. It's beautiful and powerful. Isaiah had to say these words to people that did not believe it and had chosen to reject it. Down in Egypt, there were horses, but they were made of flesh and not spirit. And a spirit without flesh was going to undo 185,000 with flesh and no spirit. No spirit like this. I hope you understand that huge difference when we deal with God and His angels. When the Lord shall stretch out His hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, there's the Egyptians, and he that is holpen shall fall down, there's those, the men of Judah, and they all shall fail together. 
It's going to come to nothing. It will not work when you look anywhere else for help but to the Lord himself. And so we have lesson number one in the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 31. Now I read to you how God will mightily defend Jerusalem in verses 4 and 5. Back and forth. you got to read carefully. Don't skip a verse because you might skip an important verse of mercy. Like right here, we're going to have two verses stuck in here about God's kindness. God will mightily defend Jerusalem. Verse 4. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me. Like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. Amen. Amen. As so. As so. That's a simile. When you use that word as, or you use the word like, you have yourself a simile. A short similitude. Or a simple similitude. And so we have some comparisons here. Two comparisons of how God will protect Jerusalem. First, lions. Second, birds and not sparrows. Birds like eagles. God loves the eagle. You can find that in Job, and you can find that in Isaiah 40. But first of all, the lions in verse 4. God is going to defend like a lion. A lion does, is not afraid of shepherds' voices when he has prey in front of him, and he will not abase himself because the shepherds are making a lot of noise. Rabshaki was making a lot of noise. And the Lord was not going to abase himself for Rabshaki or Sennacherib. And so like lions, the Lord would defend Jerusalem. Long verse, simple point, nice comparison. Thank you, Lord, for being our lion. Amen. The lion of the tribe of Judah has wrought for us, as we read in Revelation 5. Verse 5, Revelation chapter 5 is what I was referring to, but here in verse 5 of Isaiah 31, the second comparison, as birds flying. Now what kind of a bird is a good defender? And it's the eagle. Let's think of the eagle because the Bible thinks of the eagle. And the eagle is a defender. And the eagle is fast. And the eagle is powerful. And the eagle has wonderful talons. And it's a powerful cre creature that God has made. And as birds flying... This is not an ostrich, and it's not a chicken. Chicken are not, no, is not, are not known for their flying like an eagle. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem right. as birds flying like an eagle. Horizontal, horizontal, by wing beats, eagles are not very fast. About 30. Pitiful. But they don't like being flying flat. They circle around on air drafts a quarter or half mile up. A quarter of a mile, they can still see field mice. And the Lord tells us they have eyesight like that. Right. I like having an eagle eye looking out for me, being the Lord of hosts, and circling around way up there on those updrafts 
when they turn around and they know how to tuck their wings, 150. Mm -hmm. 150. He comes to the rescue of whatever he is going to defend like a nest. How many of you have ever happened while hiking or playing or hunting happened upon a bird's nest or got too close to a bird's nest? Do they fly around a little bit? Do they get near your head? Are you afraid of missing an eyeball shortly? Because they're flying to defend. And so you've got to picture this eagle coming to defend Jerusalem in a 150 mile per hour dive, going to blast into its target because an eagle is like that. And so we have verse 5. It's, it's beautiful. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. I will come rushing at a high rate of speed to Jerusalem's defense. And not only will I defend it, I will succeed in defending it by delivering it. And when I deliver it, I'm going to pass over it in my high-speed dive and hit someone else instead. Notice what it says. And passing over, he will preserve it. Did the Lord ever pass over in the land of Egypt? And the death angel only struck the Egyptians. And he's only going to strike the Assyrians and pass over Jerusalem. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful statements of safety and deliverance. Verses 6 and 7. They should turn to God against idols because he is going to revive them and they might as well get it started. Verses 6 and 7. Turn ye, turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Turn back to God from whom you've revolted. Turn back to him, because God is arranging a complete revival because your trust in anything but Him is going to be shown to be a shame and confusion and of no profit like we heard from chapter 30. And this is a summary of chapter 30. So turn to Him now. Sennacherib is coming. Sennacherib's mighty army is going to come into Palestine. It's going to come into Judea. It's going to take all the fenced cities except for Jerusalem. It's going to happen. You will realize your idols cannot save you. So turn to him now, realize in standing or sitting still, he will save you and give you strength. Get rid of your idols, because you're going to be getting rid of them when he exposes how helpless they are to deliver you. Turn ye unto him. And so the Jews were exhorted by Isaiah to turn to the Lord, because a day was coming in the which the folly of trusting in idols would be fully exposed. So they might as well turn now. Verses 8 and 9. God would mightily crush the Assyrians. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man. And the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear. And his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. Amen. Those are wonderful verses. 
Rejoice in them. This is our God. This is our Father in heaven. This is Him and how He's going to treat the enemies of His church. Verse 8. The Assyrian shall fall with the sword. But not the sword of a mighty man. And not the sword of average men. But yet a sword. The sword of the Lord. And you can make it literal or figurative or anything you want. It's the sword of the Lord. He's going to come with his sword and cut down the Assyrian army and shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be discomfited. He and his. Sennacherib's going to run away. Sennacherib with shame of face and fear is going to go back to Nineveh, but his young men will be discomfited. Two things. I would like you to think about that last clause. Young men. Basic training. Completed. Advanced training. Completed. Special forces. Completed. These was not ordinary, ordinary army. you got to go read 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 21. These are the leaders and the captains and princes of the Assyrian Empire. These are the best of the best. They're young men. They're in the prime of life. And they would be discomfited. I want two things. One, young men. These are not retirees that they brought out from the VA hospital. These are young men fit for battle of the Assyrians, and they've already besieged a number of cities and taken them of the Philistines and of Judah and beaten Terhaka of the Ethiopians. Discomfited. When you look at the word, are some of you tricked by the word to think that it means make them uncomfortable? Discomfited means to slaughter them, to rout them, to destroy them. The young men of the Assyrian army would be slaughtered by the sword, and it wouldn't be the sword of a mighty man or of an average man, but by the Lord himself. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear. I like this verse because it tells us a little bit more about Sennacherib that he's going to go back to Nineveh for fear. Right. You know, we, we read in other places that he went back with shamed face because of his, tremendous, his big loss. But this tells us he went back to his stronghold for fear, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, on the Tigris River. And his princes shall be afraid of the ensign. The ensign. The standard of Jehovah on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They will be afraid of what is coming out of Jerusalem because there's a fire in Zion and there's a furnace in Jerusalem and it has an ensign for God, the Lord Jehovah of the Jews, and they are terrified. You know, the, we've run into the ensign before. It is a picture for us of calling together an army and raising a standard and saying, this is our land. We have taken this hill. You cannot have it. Try to take it. I gave you an example of Iwo Jima in World War II when we planted our flag on top of that rock. And so the ensign here is scaring the princes of the king of Assyria and the mighty Assyrian army and empire because the Lord is behind that ensign. 
and that picture. There isn't a real flag. There isn't a real coat of arms. It's a picture. This is my property, and there's a fire burning in Zion, and there's a furnace in Jerusalem, and it has reached out and taken 185,000 of your army, and the ones that were left were afraid. And the, and the king of, of Assyria, Sennacherib himself, went back to his stronghold to try to find some safety and peace. And the Lord let him think about it for a while before his sons came back in a worship service and killed him. This is Isaiah 31. It's simple. You can understand all of it. So where are we going to trust from now on for anything in our lives? To the Lord. Are we going to do all that we can do? Or are we going to do our reasonable best and trust Him for the rest? That's what we should do. Because it's vain for us to rise up early and to sit up late. We need to sit still instead. You know, the man that is sitting up late, what's he doing? He's at the keyboard. He's at the computer. He's at the, uh, the machine that's making parts. He's working. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Right. He giveth his beloved, go to bed. Do your reasonable best. Go to bed and trust the Lord for the rest. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Psalm 127 tells us. That's what these two chapters tell us. Sit still and see the salvation of God. Amen. Their strength is to sit still. They would have had the strength of Jehovah with far less trouble if they'd have just sat still and thought about the God that had wrecked Egypt and that he was now going to wreck the Assyrians and put their confidence and trust in him. It could have been so simple. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to be all that we should be in faith and confidence and trusting the Lord, believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And amen.